I want to say a word about prayer before we get into our message this morning. This is the first uh, Sunday of the month, and we've kind of made it our plan to emphasize prayer on the first Sunday of every month. And so I just want to point out a couple things to you guys that um, I encourage you towards. First of all, on the bottom of your worship notes, when you came in this morning, you were given a piece of paper that kind of walks through our plan for today a little bit. And um, down there at the bottom is a tear-off part for you. And, and here's our intent. We're asking you if there's something in your life that you're just seeking the Lord on and, and you really want somebody praying with you about, um, that's a place for you to, to communicate that with us. And what happens is so that is forwarded to a team of people and we, we pray over those needs. And so um, if the Lord has put you in a spot where you need somebody to be lifting you up and praying for you, that's a great place to take advantage of that. Secondly, on Sunday mornings at 8.45, I know it's early, but at 8.45 on Sunday morning, there's a group of people that meet every single Sunday morning in the library, would love to have you join us for prayer. And um, you might, that might sound a little intimidating to some, and, and it's, it shouldn't be at all. Believe me, you come, you'll be fine. You don't have to necessarily pray out loud, but you can if you want to. The whole idea is we gather together as believers and ask the Lord to, to use our church to, to just proclaim his name in our community. So join with us, 845 before focus hour. And then the last thing uh, this morning that I want to call your attention to is this pink piece of paper. It's over on the table there. And it's a prod in your life to, to help you to be praying about some specific things. So we took some time and, and just laid out a plan for you to be praying. So the whole idea is this. Um, we are dependent upon the Lord. You know, prayer is, is not a magic rabbit's foot. It's not something that you rub and, and then you get what you want. It doesn't work that way. The whole idea is we're dependent upon the Lord. And so prayer is very much a, a, an indication. The, the, our prayer life is, is very much an evaluation of your understanding of your dependence upon the Lord. Show me a man who doesn't pray and I'll show you a self-dependent man. Show me a person that, that doesn't recognize their need for the Lord to work, and they're not praying. And so I invite you, I invite you to understand God's love for you as your father, and to come to him in prayer. In my own walk with the Lord in the last few weeks and months, I, I've been just sort of challenged with the idea that God not only desires to for me to pray for my benefit, but God wants that time with his children. I'm a dad, I've got four kids. Last week we were away on vacation. I was able to be with two of my children. And it's a joy for a father to be with his children. Now if me, being a sinful man, can understand that, how much more is God filled with joy when we come to him in prayer. So be challenged this morning on this first Sunday um, to spend time with your heavenly father in prayer. Let's do that right now. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, that you invite us to yourself. Lord, we're gonna open up your word in just a minute. We need you to speak to our hearts we're asking your spirit, Lord, to, to show us the truth of your word 
And we're asking your spirit to speak specifically to us, to each of us. Lord, only you can do that. You're the only one in all the universe who can speak to each of us specifically at one time. That's how great you are. Lord, that you can take your word and you can allow it to impact our lives in the way that you want it to. That's your nature. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I already said, we, uh, we were on a, a vacation, and you might wonder where my hair went. Why did it go from my head to my face? Um, this is hiking lull, so, so in case you wonder, maybe the other lull will show up re- later. But um, we do enjoy to hike as a family. And um, I underestimated the impact of elevation. You know, elevation really impacts your breathing. And I, I've done a lot of hiking on the East Coast. Most places I've around, I, my wife and I and kids have, have crawled around most rocks that you can find within several hundred mile radius. But we went out west to the real mountains. I'm sorry, folks. Where are you at, Pastor Billy? I don't know why we call West Virginia the mountain state. It's, it's a misnomer, okay? It should be Montana. So that's where we were. And, and we did one particular hike in, in regular McDonald fashion. We open up the, the map of all the hikes and we look for the most difficult one, okay? And we say, that's the one we're going to do. And so we did Highline Trail. And it's about 13 miles the last four miles, I really wanted to die. I mean, it was, I just was really just saying, Lord, let's just go home right now. I'm done. But the thing that I underestimated, and, and really this isn't that high, but the elevation at the highest point on this hike was just over 7,200 feet. And that, I, I, you know, I underestimated the impact of that elevation on my breathing. So we're going up and up, and the way this trail went, you went up and down and up and down and up and down just in a cruel way. You know, some kind of a sadist designed this hike. And, I, of course, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but it was very, very difficult. And the thing that kind of made me angry is, I mean, I'm huffing and puffing. Now, I'm 48 years old, but I like to think of myself as a pretty fit 48-year-old, you know? And I can usually pound it out and, and get way ahead of any 11-year-old, typically, but not on this hike. We're hiking and, and I'm struggling to breathe. I'm just, you know, I'm not like panting, but it's just difficult. And here come this family behind me that just made me mad. This husband, this wife, and two little kids. And they just go walking on by. You're like, oh, how you doing? And they just, just pass us. And I'm like, dirty, rotten sinners. You know, what's wrong with them? And so we, we did this thing over and over and over. We'd get ahead of them and then they would get ahead of us. And, and every time we stop, it's because really I need to stop. And these little kids, they're not even 11. They're like nine years old. Made me I really wanted to beat them up. I thought about it, but I saw their condition in mine, and I thought she might take me, so I stayed away. But then I heard the secret. So I'm, you know, panting behind them, trying to figure out that whole draft thing they do in NASCAR. Maybe if I get behind this short nine-year-old, you know, and walk behind her, it'll be easier. And I hear the dad say to the little boy, who's like three, okay, that's an exaggeration, but he was like 13, okay? And he says, hey, when we get home, you can jump in the pool, but then we got to go to soccer practice. And I was like, bingo, that's it, that's it. 
I felt much better. I wasn't the wimp, the girly man that I was afraid I was. You know what it was? They live there. They're used to that elevation. I live down here. They live up here. The elevation wasn't as much of an issue for them. But this old eastern, you know, coast guy was struggling. And I'll bring up that point because of where we're headed today in our passage. I want to, my prayer is that I can cast a vision before you of our almighty God. And you can see God high and lifted up at the elevation he deserves. Because if we can get up into that elevation, into our, to the nature and the character of the almighty God of the universe, if we can get used to that kind of height, if we can live up there and learn to breathe in that air, that makes life here on this planet a whole lot easier. If we can live with a high view of God, the little piddly things of our life, they don't go away. I'm not trying to tell you that. They don't even get smaller. They stay huge. But compared to our great God, their size is brought back to the proper perspective. So that's where we're headed today. We're going through a, a series on the Old Testament. And we call it Dust to Glory. We started in Genesis 3 with the fall of man. And saw that man revealed he was made of dust. And we saw the descent as sin worked its will in people's lives. Which resulted in adultery and murder and pain and grief. But all along as we saw man's dustiness revealed... All along, there's been a promise made. There's been a promise made to man. And that promise has come from none other than God himself. And the promise is that God would send a king. God would send one. God would send his son, Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, who would one day rule on the earth. And so we are to live now on this dusty planet with that great thought in mind that Jesus is coming. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 is where I'm going to start this morning. I want to remind you again, we're on our ninth reason why it's a good idea to read the Old Testament, to study the Old Testament. And I want to show you Hebrews 1, 1. Hebrews 1, 1. As you turn there, it's towards the end of your Bible, one of the last few books of your Bible. Hebrews 1, written to a church with a lot of Jewish people in it. A lot of Jewish people have come to Christ and were part of this church. And so the writer of Hebrews explains something that, that is relevant to them and to us. Hear the word of God. Hebrews 1, 1. The writer says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The writer saying, God in the past spoke to us through the prophets. That's how God revealed himself. 
Without God's revelation, we would be clueless of what God is truly like. All we can see is creation. If there is, there must be a God. But because of his revelation, we can know about him. We can know him. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets. But now, in these last days, verse number two, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, the reason why I wanted to start here today is really, there's several reasons. One, we're going to go look at one of the things that the prophets had to say. We're going to focus in on the prophet Isaiah today, and we're going to see what did God reveal about himself to Isaiah to the world. We're going to see that. And so there's value in that, in seeing what we can learn about the character and nature of God as he communicated to the prophet Isaiah. But I also want to just mention here that now the way God primarily speaks to us is through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the word of God. In other words, we don't need prophets today. We don't need a new prophet. We have the word of God. As a matter of fact, be, be wary. Run from someone who claims to be a prophet speaking on behalf of God. The Bible is clear. If anybody comes, if an angel itself comes and teaches you another gospel, let him be accursed. Genesis chapter 1. We have what we need in the word of God. That's where we go. Careful. We don't need tradition. We don't need some man. We don't need the church of any form. We have the word of God. It alone is our authority. Scripture alone, no tradition, no church, no man, no history. Scripture alone. Well, let's go back now. Let's go back into the book of Isaiah. In, in my Bible, that's on page 720 some, okay? So go ahead and find it, and let's say a few words about Isaiah, and then see particularly, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah is one of the prophets. Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation, and that is his message. The Lord is salvation. Over and over and over, Isaiah is proclaiming that God has come, God is coming to provide salvation. That man is saved only through God. Man is not saved through his righteous acts. Isaiah says our righteous acts are like filthy rags. You, you, you don't need to be baptized. You don't need to be good. You don't have to come to church. These things don't save anyone. They don't save anyone. We're only saved by grace through faith. This is what Isaiah is communicating. Now Isaiah is a, is a beautiful book. It, it's the message of, of Isaiah is, we're going to see it all through this, but, but Isaiah comes really with two messages. Two me and that's why on our screen here we've got a, kind of a dark side and a bright side. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, it's a long book, 66 chapters. If you're just starting with us to read through the Old Testament, start in Isaiah this week. You can find a sheet over there, it's white, and start reading through with us through the Old Testament. But start this week with Isaiah 1, if you want to read with us through the Old Testament. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are all about the coming destruction of the people of God. For 490 years, God's people rebelled against him. And now Isaiah is bringing a message. 
And that is that God has said the time is up. It's up. Isaiah is writing within 20 years of the Assyrian nation coming down from the north above Israel, attacking the northern kingdom, and taking them as slaves. Within just over 100 years, the nation of Babylon is going to defeat the Assyrians, and then they're going to come and destroy the rest of, Jer- of Jerusalem, the rest of Israel. So within 125 years or so, when Isaiah wrote this, there will be no nation of Israel. None. For 2,000 years, there will be no nation of Israel. And that is the message of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters. But in chapter 40, there's now a message of hope. So 40 through 66 are that God's grace is still here. And though you may go through some terrible times, And these terrible times will include death and destruction and captivity. God has a great plan. God has a great plan. Let me just say some more about your Old Testament just to help you a little bit. We're now moving into the prophets. We've been through the the 17 books of history. We've been through the five books of wisdom. Now we're into the 17 books of prophecy. Isaiah is called one of the major prophets. There's five of those, five books of those, really four prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations. So we have five books of the major prophets and 12 of the minor. Now they're not major minor because one's important, one isn't important. It's simply by the size of the writing. So Isaiah wrote 66 chapters, where Malachi at the end only wrote four. They're all equally God's word. But the major are larger in their content. The minor are a little smaller. We'll, we'll deal with, with some of the minor later. But let me just give you a flavor of some of the things that are in Isaiah. Because you know a lot of this. Um, first of all, we have, we have Isaiah 7.14. That God will give a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You should call his name Emmanuel. Remember that? That great Christmas passage. Isaiah chapter 9 is another fantastic Christmas passage. For to us today this child is born and he'll be called Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Let me show you something that's interesting about Isaiah. This is in Isaiah chapter 40. Okay, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now in your, in your mind, I want you to answer this question. Who said, who famously said that quotation in your New Testament? Just in your mind, you know that? In the words, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You recognize those words? That's who? John the Baptist, right? Little interesting fact about Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. This is in the 40th chapter of Isaiah. How many books are in your Old Testament? Just think in your mind, you know? 39, okay? So the 40th chapter, the 40th book of your Bible is what? Matthew, okay? And here we start into now the hope. One of the things that people find very interesting, and I can't explain this, and and don't ask me to, to even take a whack at it, but a lot of people call Isaiah your little Bible, The first 39 chapters kind of mirror the Old Testament. 40 through 66 very much mirror 
your New Testament. If you want to see this, spend some time as you're reading, as you're reading this week through Isaiah, when you're on the fifth chapter of Isaiah, find the connection to Deuteronomy. It's there. It's quite interesting. When you're at the end, at the 66th book of Isaiah, see how Isaiah is talking about the end of time. He's talking about eschatology. Just like the book of Revelation. It's just, just odd. Just something I thought I'd point out to you. There's more Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is like an eyewitness account of Jesus' betrayal, death, and resurrection. And Isaiah wrote this 740 years before Jesus was ever even born. And Isaiah describes Jesus being betrayed and and dying for sins. And then Isaiah 61. This is arguably Jesus' favorite passage from Isaiah because on two different occasions, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 in explaining his ministry as the Messiah. Jesus walked into the synagogue. He was there and he said, hand me the scroll for today's reading. And it was Isaiah 61. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening the prison of those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and set it down. And what did he say? On this day, this has been fulfilled. And what did the crowd do? They rejected him because they knew what he was saying. He was claiming to be this Messiah. Later, John the Baptist is in prison. He's concerned. He says, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? And you know what Jesus tells him? Through, through a proxy, since somebody else to say to him, Isaiah 61. This, I think, was Jesus' favorite part of Isaiah because he keeps quoting from it over and over and over. Well, as I already said, there's, there's sort of two sections in Isaiah, and um, you, can, you can follow along this week when you're reading 1 to 39 and, and 40 through 66, but where I want to go today is in Isaiah chapter 6. So go with me to Isaiah chapter 6, and let's see um, perhaps the, the greatest glimpse into the throne room of God in all of your Old Testament, and you will see perhaps the most important glimpse at the character of God. And we will land on one particular word that describes our great God. Isaiah chapter six, verse number one. I'm gonna read the whole chapter, so follow along with me. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Now let me just pause here. God is doing something very unique here. God is now giving Isaiah a glimpse into heaven. This is a very rare thing. And Isaiah now is going to try to describe what he sees. There's only a few people in all of time who have seen this. Now, we, you don't leave here now saying, oh, God, give me a glimpse of heaven. You got it right here. This is where we go. In the past, God spoke to us through his prophets. So now we're given man's 
ability, man's opportunity to describe the heaven room of God. Above him stood the seraphim. These are angelic beings. Each had six wings. This is going to be odd. This is going to be strange. We're now seeing created beings that God made. They had six wings. With two, he covered his face. The seraphim did. He covered his face. And and with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another. So there's a chorus going back and forth. And here's what they said. And and when I look at Revelation chapter 4, where this throne room is also described, I, I have every reason to believe that this course is repeated over and over and over. Over and over and over. These created seraphim, which is a, which is a type of an angel with six wings and eyes and a mouth and feet, apparently, cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That's Lord Almighty. That's Lord All-Powerful. That's Lord of the army is what that literally is. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. The seraphim, when they spoke with their power, with their might, the whole room shook. And the house was filled with smoke. Very likely a a, a means of protecting Isaiah and the created beings. The Bible says if any man sees God, he must die. Exodus 33. So this smoke, I believe, is a protective sort of barrier between Isaiah and God. And Isaiah says... Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim, fly over to Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal, maybe the very coal that's producing the fire. He had taken it from the tongs from the altar and he touched Isaiah's mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord the very voice of God. And it said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Speaking of the Trinity, I believe. Father, Son, Spirit, who will go? Isaiah, I believe in a, in a quaking voice. He says, here I am. Send me. And then the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the army, the Lord Almighty says this to Isaiah, go, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes, their ears that is heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then Isaiah cried out, How long, O Lord? 
He said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth or a tithe remain in it, it'll be burned again. Like a parapet, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Now this is a glimpse into the throne room of God. And Isaiah here is given a, two views that we need to understand and, and apply in our lives. First of all, he's given a view of the throne room of God. He's given a, a view of God. And this, this highly lifted up view of God will sustain him through his life and through his death. Death, was, death came to Isaiah. Those that he, came, that he brought this message to got so tired of him that they slammed him into a hollowed out log and they sawed him in half. That's how Isaiah died, tradition tells us. The view of God in his majesty and his grandeur was enough to sustain Isaiah over the next 30, 40 years as he was rejected. And God brought judgment to the nation of Israel. But it also brings hope to us that our message will get through. Let's, let's see it together. We start out with this vision of God. And I've already referenced some of these things. But I want to say several more things about this. First of all, it says in the, in the year that King Uzziah died. Let me just say briefly here about this. King Uzziah ruled for over 50 years. And he was a good king. He was a king of Judah. He wasn't perfect, but he was one of the very few good kings. And with his death followed a king who was far from good, who did great evil. And so Isaiah, interesting enough about Isaiah, he was able to speak to three or four kings. He was obviously a person of prestige. He was a man that the kings would bring to him and say, Isaiah, what does God have to say? And so he knew Uzziah. He knew him. And now he has died, and he sees there's an evil king coming. There's one who will have nothing to do with God. And that's the moment that God brings this prophecy to Isaiah's eyes. As if, it's, as if God is saying to, to Isaiah, it doesn't matter who's on the throne. It doesn't matter who's on this little piddly throne of the king of Israel. God is on the throne. The majestic one is ruling over all the earth. Don't tell me who the king is. Don't tell me who the, pre who the president is. Don't tell me who your boss is. Don't tell me who your parent is. None of those things really matter. God is ruling over all the details of the world. And so Isaiah uses several names here for God. I want to just briefly mention them. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. That's the word Adonai, and it means sovereign. It means master. It means ruler. So Isaiah's looking in the throne room of God, and God says, I'm the master. I'm the ruler. Listen, there are hard times coming for the nation of Israel. Understand, in less than 20 years, many of the hearers of this message are going to be killed 
and taken as slaves, they need to know that God is master. Sometimes life comes at you so hard. You need to know that the king is on the throne and that he loves you and that he has his best for you. He doesn't only call him king. He also calls him in verse number three, the Lord of hosts. I referenced this once. This is Yahweh over the army. Yahweh almighty. Yahweh the ruling one, the promise keeper, the strong hand of God. He's sovereign. But I want to I sort of land here on, on a few things. The seraphim are interesting, okay, and it'd be fun to talk about them. They cover their eyes, I believe, because the, of God's holiness. Even these created worshipers need to, need to shelter themselves from the, the majesty of God. And they're fun to think about and they're fun to talk about. But I want us to focus in on verse number three, what the seraphim are saying. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy. That's a, that's a Hebrew superlative. Here's what that means. He's the most holy. It's like, you know how you've seen those things, good, better, best? You go to Home Depot, like, oh, this is a good hoe. This is a better hoe. This is the best one you can find. That's what this is. Holy, holy, holy. This isn't stuttering. This isn't stammering. This is superlative. The most holy of all the holies. There is no one like him, is what the seraphim are saying. And they proclaim his holiness. And we need to talk about what that word means, because most of us don't understand it. Most of us don't understand what the word holy means. Holy primarily has, well, it has two primary meanings. A major meaning and a minor meaning, okay? Two, two primary meanings, a major meaning and a minor meaning. And most of us, we ask what holy means, we'll simply proclaim the minor. We answer the minor. And if I said to you something, is, is someone is holy, you would think, well, they're really a good person. They're pure, they're, they're righteous. They're, they're a good guy. They, they follow God's law. And that is, that is a meaning, if done perfectly, that is a meaning of holy. But folks, that's the minor meaning. The major meaning is something very different. And I believe that the seraphim are calling out to the major meaning of holy. To get to the definition let me tell you a little story. When I was a kid, there were woods behind my house that I loved to play in, okay? There was one spot several hundred yards up the mountain. I lived in a valley between two very large mountains, and there was a spot up on the mountain that there was just a small little section that was, that was very flat. I mean, no more than like a bedroom. And all over this flat surface was a green, thick moss, you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen that up in the mountains somewhere? And on the four corners of this little flat area were, were four great big oak trees, huge, leaning out away from that little moss circle. And on many occasions, when I'd get in trouble, or I did something wrong, or just had a bad day, 
me, little 10-year-old kid, you know what I'd do? I'd go up to that spot. And that was like me and my brother and my cousin. That was our spot. Did you have one of those spots when you were a kid? Maybe it was your bedroom. Maybe a, a place, you know, movies today make fun of it called the happy place, okay? But it really, we all had that, right? See, that spot for me is a small glimpse of a holy spot. Now, it wasn't, there was no anointing, okay? There was any special water dropped on it like that. But it was a different spot. It was a unique place that I would go. We have holidays. Those are days that we celebrate unique moments. Your birthday, your, your anniversary. We celebrate the birth of Christ on a holiday, a holy day. The word holy means separate, different. It means far above. It doesn't mean odd or strange. No, it means lifted high above everything else. It means transcendent is what it means. This is the, the, the angels are crying out that God in a superlative manner Holy, holy, holy is unlike any other creature in all the world. He is unique, and he's not a creature. I, I misspoke. Like any other, any other person, any other being, any other God. He is unique. Unlike you. Unlike me. He's not a really, really good person. That's not what God is. He's transcendent above us. And the angels are saying that to Isaiah. And God is saying that through his spirit to us. He is high and lifted up above you. And this is very important for us to understand. That God is lifted high. Completely separate. He's totally other. Transcendent above us. This is not a, this is not a trait that is communicable. Is what the theologians say. What that means is. I, I can't like become like that. I can't be high and lifted up. Only God can be. A couple things that we need to understand about that. God is separate and above any man's opinion. You didn't ask to be created. You didn't ask for him to be God. He just spoke and you existed. So quite honestly, God really doesn't care what we think about him. God's not worried about the skeptic who wonders whether he exists. God is above all of that. God's not worried about you wondering whether his word is true. He is above all of that. Let any skeptic come. Let anybody scoff at God. And God says, I am above all of that. I don't have to defend God. He is transcendent above all. All I got to do. And I don't even have to do that because somebody else will, if I don't, is point to him. God never needed us. God has no need. But yet, he invites us into his majesty. No ranting, no arguing. No debating, 
will ever put a dent in the holiness and the transcendence of God. Isaiah was taking a message that would be rejected. He would come and proclaim God to people who should have known him. And their ears would be dull and their eyes would be blind. And God says, I am above all of that. I am the majestic king. This blows the water out of any autonomy. It blows the water out of any desire to be the Lord of your life or the one that's ruling your day. No. Only God. See him high and lifted. See him. I find it interesting in Isaiah 6 that when Isaiah sees this, look at his response in verse number 5. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. Look back one page at Isaiah 5, verse number 20, and look what Isaiah says in 520. Isaiah 520 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Woe to them. And now Isaiah says, woe to me. Doesn't change the woe of Isaiah 5 but brings humility to the message that Isaiah would bring. He says, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I find it interesting. The seraphim nor God said one word about Isaiah's sin. God didn't say, Isaiah, look at your sin. The seraphim didn't say, Isaiah, look at your sin. But when Isaiah saw the holiness of God, what did he say? My lips are unclean. He didn't give any kind of an excuse. He didn't say, God, if you knew the difficulty I had, if you knew the mom I had, the dad I had, if you knew what my boss was like, if you knew what it was like to drive on these highways, he didn't do any of that kind of stuff. There's no rationalization. The woman made me do it. None of that happened. No. He said, my lips are unclean. The vision of God was great. And it brought Isaiah's reality to bear. He dwells in the midst. Read with me. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Here is pastoral heart. He is burdened for those around. He is, he is aware of his sinfulness, and he's burdened for those people around him who also, before this high and mighty God, this holy, separate, transcendent one who reigns above, he says, we're all unclean. We're all unclean, God. He's crying. He, he recognizes he should die. Hebrews 10.31, I wrote this down. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Over and over and over, Peter, when he knew who Jesus was, fell on his face. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, they said, who are you? He said, ego me. I am Yahweh. And the soldiers 
fell like dead men. Revelation chapter 1, John the Revelator, when he sees Jesus, falls on the ground. Folks, there is no time when you're going to ask God that big question. You know how I like when people do that you know, on the news or on television programs. When I see God, I'm going to ask him such and such. Really? Every man or woman that comes before the throne room of God... And by his grace, he puts up this smoke screen so they aren't instantly killed. It's on their face. Because that is our majestic God. But see the grace. See the grace. Look what happens. Then one of the seraphim, by the way, who only act by the will of God. The angels who are now before the throne room of God have willed to obey God. Sometime in, in eternity past, the angels then chose whether they would follow God or follow Satan. This seraphim is now a doer of God's will. And so the seraphim now flies to Isaiah, having in his hand a burning coal that he touches Isaiah's mouth and says, your lips clean, your guilt Gone, your sin atoned for. It is the grace of God. And what we must see in this passage is that the only hope that man has ever had, whether you are Isaiah in the throne room of God, or you are right now in 2018 in Martinsburg, West Virginia, the only hope any person has ever had is for God to do a divine work of salvation in your life. The seraphim come with this burning coal and places it on the Isaiah's lips. I believe this is an illustration. It's a metaphor. God is trying to show Isaiah an important lesson. And the lesson is this. You have sin that must be dealt with for God is holy. And he cannot come into the presence of sin. God is altogether different. God is separate, transcendent, and he is absolutely pure. That is holiness, major and minor. And in order for Isaiah to come into his presence, his sin must be atoned for. And it is no effort of man. God doesn't say to Isaiah, now you be a good guy. You follow rules. You be baptized. You join the church. You get married. You do penance. Anything like that. Nothing like that at all. Isaiah stands there before God like a blind, poor beggar. And all he can say is, woe is me. Woe is me. I am a sinner separated by my sin. I don't bring any righteous acts. And God says, I will come and I will justify you by faith alone. That's what that is. I know that's a big word. Justification by faith alone. Only because of the faith of Isaiah that he sees God high and lifted up, believes on him, he knows he's a sinner, woe is me, I am lost, I should die. He is mighty, he is high, he is lifted up. God then does all the work and atones for Isaiah's sin. Folks, you've got to recognize we are surrounded by false teaching all the time. My family went and visited Salt Lake City and went into the, the Mecca of Mormonism and to see it and to, to observe it and to, to see this system of works 
that says I have to be baptized. I've got to do these good works. I've got to give to the church. I've got to do these things. And then because of the cross of Christ, I can be saved. No. No. If we bring any works to this, if Isaiah said, hey, wait a minute, God, wait a minute. Let me clean off my mouth, then you can burn it. Wait a minute, God, wait a minute, God. Let me be baptized, and then you can burn it. Anything like that. God says this, Isaiah 42, verse number eight. I hear this, God speaking through Isaiah. I will not share my glory with another. I will not share my glory with another. Here's what that means. If salvation, if justification is a little bit of my work and a whole lot of the cross, then I'm saying to God, hey, let's share glory. Let's share glory. You get most of it. I mean, after all, you died on the cross, but I get this little piece here because I was baptized. I get this little piece here because of penance. I get this little piece here because I'm a member of the church. God says, I share my glory with no one. You're on your own. It's not just Isaiah. James chapter four. God says he gives grace to the humble. That's Isaiah. But he resists the proud. He resists the proud. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We are saved by grace alone, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Once I add a work to this, once Isaiah says, I'll do this or that or, or anything, now he's something to boast about. God says, I resist you. I don't share my glory with you. You are on your own. Salvation, we see through the life of Isaiah, is only by faith. Through this grace. Sin must be atoned for. And man is helpless. Helpless. As he stands before this almighty God. What right do we have to bring any little pit little garbage? As a matter of fact, the things we do bring, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. Soiled claws. It's all we have to bring. It's all we have to bring. So the angel, on behalf of God, says, Behold, it has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Some people say that, some people call Isaiah the Paul of the Old Testament. Because you will find parallels uh, in the book of Isaiah, the things that Paul wrote primarily in the book of Romans. Paul said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's that truth. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Listen, let's just stop for a minute. Let's just stop. As we consider the high and holy God, as we consider your reality and your understanding of grace, Isaiah is sent to a religious people. The people that Isaiah is going to bring this message to know their Bible, many of them better than you. 
Understand that. He is going to a people that are called the people of the book. They know the Bible. But they were not, many of them, the majority, were not leaning on justification by faith alone. We are foolish to think there aren't people in this room who think, who are trusting in something that you have done. I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Understand from the authority of God's word, not me. I've quoted much scripture to you. I'll give you all the verses you need to make this ring true in your heart. There is no work you can do to bring yourself to God. God calls for you to believe on his son. And then he calls you his child. And justification is yours. Salvation is yours. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. Look to him, not in that dirty mirror. Because it won't save you or anybody else. Just to wrap up, to finish the chapter. When, you look at the, when we look at the mission of Isaiah, I'll, I'll leave this to you and say this. This is not a message that's received very well. Isaiah is told, they're going to they're gonna reject you. They're going to reject you. Oh, they'll be, a, they'll be a small group. He calls it a tithe or a tenth or a stump. But most are going to just hack you down, Isaiah. But once in a while, as you and I proclaim the message, once in a while, God quickens a soul to life. So don't grow weary in well-doing. Keep pointing to the king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your grace, for your clear, clear teaching in your word that we are never saved by our works. Like Isaiah, as he stood before you, fell to his face and cried out for your mercy. Woe is me. Lord, may we cry out in a similar way and recognize our need for you and your absolute lack of need for us. But yet you call us to your side. God, you are mighty and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.